Good morning. How you guys doing? My name is Ben Nielsen, and uh, first I just want to welcome you to Citizens if you have not been here before. Um, but I'm an elder here, and uh, usually when I'm up here, we're going through the book of Daniel. But today we're going to continue in our series that we've been going through called the Songs of Nativity. Uh, two weeks ago, Jonathan preached on the Magnificat. And if you were not here, this was a song of praise uh, that was sung by Mary. And it was after Elizabeth had uh, blessed her and blessed um, Christ in her womb. Uh, she was so grateful and she praises God. And so this is what pours out from her. Uh, last week, we heard the Benedictus. And this was uh, Zachariah's prophecy about his son and um, what he would do in preparing the ways for the Lord. Uh, next week, Michael will be here to talk about the Nunc Dimittis. And uh, there's a man named Simeon, and he was... Uh, told through the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah before he dies, and he is able to lay eyes on Christ, and he goes in peace. And so this week, we are going to be talking about the Gloria in Excelsis, and this is Luke 2, 13 through 14, but today we're going to be in Luke uh, 2, 1 through 20. If you notice, we didn't have a scripture reading uh, before, and that's because we're going to read the scripture. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read it uh, two separate times, not the whole thing, but verses 1 through uh, 14, and then we're going to read the rest of the passage a little later on. So that'll just kind of be in with the sermon. I don't know if any of you remember your like English middle school uh, literature class, but in that class, if you paid attention, you would have learned that most literature, movies, um, books, musicals, whatever it is, follow this uh, same kind of uh, theme. You've got your introduction, and then that takes you to the rising action, and it builds and builds and builds until you hit the climax, and then there's this falling action and resolution. And one musical that, so first off, I'm actually a big fan of musicals, uh, something that I don't think a lot of people know me, but I love musicals. I'm a sucker for people breaking out in song. Um, I wish we did it in real life, but we don't. Um, <laughs> But one of my favorite musicals is, it's actually the 1992 film version of the Broadway musical, The Newsies. I don't know if anyone in here is familiar with The Newsies, uh, but The Newsies was a musical. By the way, if you get the movie, Christian Bale's the lead, and it is so weird. Like, I saw Batman before I saw this, well, I, I saw this movie, saw Batman, realized Christian Bale was the main guy, and it's really weird when you make that connection and Batman's just bursting out into song multiple times. But anyways, this movie is about um, these newsboys who are exploited. Uh, they're not paid very much for delivering the newspapers to New York City. And so they actually band together. They form a union. They go on strike. And they are able to, uh, through a series of events, uh, get better wages, um, have a better working condition, so on and so forth. And the intro to this movie is this song called Carrying the Banner. Uh, one of the lyrics, I'm not going to sing it for you, but one of the lyrics is, what a fine life carrying the banner of New York, but it's a very sarcastic tone. And in this intro, you meet the main character, the other characters, you see where they live, you get to see where they work, and it kind of sets up the problem. You're introduced to the problem that the Newsies face. The next song 
is the world will know. And this is the rising action in this movie. It's further explaining this problem. And it's kind of setting up the showdown between the newsies and their bosses, uh, Pulitzer and Hearst. And it all builds to this climactic point, and the song we hear is Once and for All, and the Newsies get a hold of a printing press, they print their story, they put it in circulation, and the world knows what they've been going through, uh, they have their meeting, um, and it all leads to this resolution, this finale song, which is actually the first song again, but instead of this sarcastic tone, there, there's hope in it, right? It's a fine life carrying the banner of New York. So I say all this to say, uh, if we took the songs of the nativity and we kind of isolate them as one story, it too is going to follow this path. We're going to have our introduction. Mary's song is this introduction. She's visited by an angel um, and, the, and the passages around it, right? She's visited by an angel. We meet some of the main characters of this, the main character, which is God. And she tells us more about God. She, in 147, she says, God is our save is a savior. Um, in 149, she talks about God being holy, and 51 through 54, we see that God is strong, He is just, um, yet He is also merciful. The Magnificat and the passages around it introduce us to this idea that we need a Savior, and it kind of builds, these songs build towards a Savior coming. The Benedictus is much like rising action in a movie, in a book, or in a musical. It brings us, it's, it takes us to the climax of this story. John the Baptist is going to pave a way for Christ to come, and Christ is this climactic act of God. Uh, next week, we'll hear about this falling action resolution if we isolate these songs. Simeon uh, wants to see the Christ and once he lays eyes on him, he is able to go in peace. There is peace because Christ has come. Christ has not yet paid the penalty of our sin. He hasn't yet died on the cross. But Simeon <laughs> trusts in the redemptive power of God, trusts in the sovereignty of God, and knows that this is the Messiah. So today we're going to talk about the climax, the Gloria in Excelsis. Everything that these first two songs is building towards is this climactic act of God which is Christ. So we're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 14. After I read it, we're going to pray, and then we're going to break down this passage in, in three points. So if you want to follow along, you can turn to Luke 2, uh, 1 through 14 now. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, there came a time for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
And this will be a sign for you. You will find him. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that over the next uh, half hour to 40 minutes, we will see that you are glorious. We will acknowledge your glory. and We will acknowledge your glory in the highest, and that is Christ. Uh, God, be with me. Help me to speak clearly. Help it to be your words and help us to understand. Uh, we love you, God, and we thank you for Christ. Amen. So, so the points we're going through today are um, that God's glory is our need. Um, the second point is God's glory is our salvation. And then the third point is uh, God's glory, our call. I forgot how I phrased it. Um, so we're going to start with God's glory, our need. And earlier, we isolated the songs of nativity as this one singular story. The Magnificat and the Benedictus acted as this introduction and rising action, which is all pointing to the coming of Christ, which the angels announce in the Gloria of Excelsis. Well, I'd argue that this is the climax of these songs of nativity. Christ's coming, his life, and his death is also the climax of a much bigger story, and that's the story of the Bible. Because of this, before we dig too far into Luke 2, 1 through 20, I think it'd be helpful if we go back and we identify the introduction and the rising action that we find in the Bible. I think if we were to make a list of some of God's greatest accomplishments ever that we read about in the Bible, a few things would pop into our head, parting the Red Sea, um, allowing a donkey to talk, uh, orchestrating the rise and fall of some of the greatest kingdoms on earth, and somewhere at the top of the list, we should probably include the creation of the world. Now, I'm sure you have heard, or you know, or you have memorized, or you've at least heard Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But over the next several verses, we are given the introduction to the world that God created. The settings made known, the characters are revealed. In verses 3 through 4, we're introduced to light and dark. In 6 through 13, God creates the sky, the land, the seas, and the vegetation. In 14 through 19, the sun, the moon, and the stars. In verses 20, this is Genesis 1. In verses 20 through 23, all of the animals are created. And from verses 24 to the end of Genesis 1, God creates mankind and dominion over his creation is given to us. In chapter 2, we meet the first people ever created, that is Adam and Eve. Now in most movies or books or musicals, if you like musicals, during the introduction, we're not only given the places and the characters, but we're also introduced to the problem that they're facing, this main problem, the problem that's going to build towards the climax. The problems generally explored in greater detail throughout the rising action, but it's ultimately solved in the climax and the resolution. In chapter 3 of Genesis, the Bible introduces us to the problem. And if you don't know this story, I'm sure you've at least heard pieces of it. You don't have to be a Christian to know the story of Adam and Eve 
and the fruit of good and evil. Adam and Eve are told that all creation is theirs. However, there is this one fruit that they're not supposed to eat. I'm going to sum it up really poorly for you. They can't do it. Okay? They can't do it. They end up eating the fruit. Eve's tempted by a serpent. She eats the fruit. Um, Adam also eats the fruit. But this, this choice becomes a driving force throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We're introduced to sin, and we cannot ignore sin. Sin is not a problem that can, can be ignored. It has to be solved. Now, we all have sin. Sin is not unique to Adam and Eve or characters in the Bible. We all experience sin, and it must be dealt with. In the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament, it's this incredible journey of people who, although they know God and they know they are sinful, they cannot deal with their sin. So we have characters. We have the main character who is God. He's perfect and holy. We also have humanity, and we are broken and depraved. We have the problem. God, who is perfect and holy, is also just. In Deuteronomy 32.4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, and God, a faithful, and God, a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. So we know that God is just. The Bible tells us that God is just. He also tells us that he is perfect. So God gives us the law, and because he is just, he has to punish anyone who breaks the law, anyone who sins. God's justice will not allow him to not punish these sins. And it's this tension and rebellion that are made all the more known throughout the Old Testament. Let's take a look of, at a couple examples we see in the Old Testament. In Exodus, God's chosen people are enslaved by Egypt, God frees them, and yet they still choose to sin. They set up an idol, and they worship this idol instead of the God who freed them from slavery. After years of exile, the, Israels are, the Israelites are finally allowed to enter the promised land, and God gives them victory after victory against neighboring nations, and yet they would rather be led by a king than led by God. As Israel, as Israel rebelled, the kings also rebel. God sends prophets to warn the people of their sinful ways, and yet they choose to continue in their sinful ways. Even, in fact, they even go so far as to treat the prophets very, very poorly, killing them, putting them in exile. In Hebrews 11, we're told that many of these Old Testament men of faith, including the prophets, were treated like this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheeps and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The people in the Old Testament heard of their sinfulness, and when they heard of it, they treated the people that God graciously gave them to let them know of their sinfulness, to warn them of their ways, they, they killed them or they treated them very poorly. And it's this rising action, right? It's this rising action, this, the, the Old Testament, we continue to learn that we are not going to be able to solve the problem of sin. Trust me, I said this before, but this is not just a problem we read about. This is our problem. This sin is our problem. Today, present, right here, it's our problem. We have chosen sin. 
And if you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm not as bad as those guys, um, I don't think anyone has cut, I don't think anyone has cut our pastor in half uh, for telling them that they are sinning, but I, I promise you that you are sinful. I think it would, it would be helpful if you could at some point today, if you feel like this, if you feel like you are not, if this is not your problem, reread Matthew chapter 5. This is a very famous sermon by Christ, and after you read it, believe me, you will realize that you are a sinful person. So we have the introduction the rising action. God is glorious and we're not. God's perfect and we're not. God is good and we're not. And God is going to judge our sins and we are going to be guilty. And we cannot fix this. Now in the passage that we're looking at today, right? I've gone almost through an entire point. I haven't even talked about what we're we're, uh, talking about today, but we're getting there. In the passage we're looking at today, the Gloria in Excelsis, the angels praise God. They give glory to God in the highest, but it's this glory that ultimately condemns us. God's glory leaves us helpless and in need. Because God is glorious and perfect and righteous, and we are not, we are left in need, but this is what the angels praise Him for. Thankfully, there's more to this story. God's glory is also our hope. The rising in the action in the Old Testament is letting us know all the more how sinful and broken we are, but it's also building towards and pointing towards these giant arrows throughout the entire Old Testament, pointing towards this one person who can fix the entire thing, and that's Christ. Let's take a couple, a look at a couple examples where these arrows are flashing and it's pointing towards Christ. In Genesis 15, when Abraham is told his offspring will be as numerous as the stars, and he believes it, he has faith. He has faith in God. And there's this instance in Genesis 15 that Paul writes about in Romans 4, 23-25. Anyone who shares in this faith by believing in Christ is credited righteousness. We are heirs with Abraham. This promise given to Abraham was because of his faith. In 2 Samuel 7, 12-17, when David is told that God, through his offspring, will set up a kingdom that lasts forever, that kingdom is referring to Christ. And it's clear to us now, it may not have been clear to the people back then, but it's clear to us now when we read Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Old Testament is filled with these giant arrows that are pointing to Christ as our solution. God had planned this from the beginning. And it's this tension throughout the Old Testament of our sinfulness and the promise throughout the Old Testament of our coming Savior that climaxes with the birth, life, and death of Christ. And we see this tension come to a head when the angels meet the shepherds. The very first thing the shepherds are told is fear not. Fear not. Now listen, it's quite possible the angels are terrified because they're out in a dark field and an angel of the Lord shows up and they're like, what in the world? This is terrifying. Uh, This made me think of in college, we did this stupid game where we'd break up into these teams of like three or four and one person from each team would have to go with the other team and you'd be blindfolded and you'd have to lay down in the back of the car and you'd get, everyone would get their cars in a circle and then they'd say go and you had 10 minutes to get as far as you could 
um, to drop this blindfolded person off. And then once you dumped them out of your car, they could call their team and their team would have to go find them. Now, I promise you, if I was blindfolded and dumped in a dark random field and somebody appeared, let alone an angel, appeared out of nowhere, I would be terrified. I would be, I'd be freaking out. Now, I always was the driver. Um, <laughs> but I told him I knew Mount Vernon very well. Um, however, it is safe to say that these shepherds fall under the same category that we fall under, which is a sinful human. And if we were approached by an angel of the Lord, we should be terrified. We've spent nearly half this time talking about how because we have chosen sin, God's glory, we have chosen sin over God's glory, we should be punished. So it's right for these angels to be terrified. It says in verse 9 that the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. These shepherds are literally surrounded by what their sinful hearts have rebelled against their entire lives. They should be filled with fear, but they're told not to fear. These shepherds have no idea what we just read in verses 2 through 6. They don't know that God has sovereignly worked to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so Mary can give birth to Christ. They don't know that Christ is going to live a perfect life and die a death and pay the penalty of our sin. He'll be found not guilty, and if we are in Him, we too will be found not guilty. They don't know this. But the angel was not there to carry out God's judgment on the shepherds, but rather to let them know about the one who is going to take God's judgment. This is why we today don't have to be afraid. The same reason the shepherds were told not to fear is the reason we do not have to be afraid. Now, after the, after the angel explains what's going down, uh, other angels join and they sing, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Now, I think we should ask the question, what do the angels mean when they say glory to God in the highest? I was reading through Matthew Henry's concise commentary on this passage. I'm just going to pull a quote out because I think he sums it up really, really well. He says, Other works of God are for His glory, but the redemption of the world is for His glory in the highest. God's good will in sending the Messiah brought peace into this lower world. Peace is here, put for all that good which flows from Christ taking our nature upon Him. This is a faithful saying, attested by an innumerable company of angels, and well worthy of all acceptance, that the good will of God toward men is glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. What he's saying is that God has brought peace on earth through Christ. And this is the most glorious thing God has done. So if you're here and your faith isn't in Christ, but you feel good enough, I promise you, you are not. Your good works or your charity or your positive vibes or karma or whatever you believe in is tainted with uncountable sins. Nothing that you have to offer is acceptable or good enough for God. Don't bet on yourself. Take Christ. The angels are a testament to this. They're here praising God for the peace that's coming through Christ. They are not here to praise the shepherds for being awesome. 
right? God is, the angels are not there to praise the shepherds. The, the shepherds did nothing special. We are nothing special. None of us can earn God's grace or his love. It's through Christ. Take Christ. But this does leave us with one question. We cannot ignore the last part of the angel's song. If Christ has finished the work, and if you are here and your faith is in Christ, then you fall into this category of well-pleased. And the promise of being of being someone that is well-pleasing to God, right? None of us are well-pleasing to God, but Christ is. And so if we're in Christ, we, we can look at this promise and say it's ours. The promise is peace on earth. So where is the peace? Because right now we live in a world where Christian missionaries are taken hostage, where tornadoes have turned up entire towns, where viruses and other diseases have taken millions of lives, where children are born sick, or they're murdered before they can even take a breath. Marriages seem to fall apart far too often, and persecution for Christians in most of the world has been very real, and where we live, it's starting to come a little more prevalent. So we have to ask this, uh, the question, where is the peace? Well, there's two answers to this. The first answer is peace is coming. There will be peace. Revelations 21, 3-5. This is a pretty familiar passage, but I'm going to read it. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. With man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's really think about that for a second. There's going to be a time where if we're in Christ, everything's peaceful. All the struggles and the trials and the things that we wrestle with are done. That is coming. But this peace is not just for when Christ returns. A sermon by John Piper on this exact passage um, I'm just going to read you a quote. He says, But Jesus has come to inaugurate that peace among God's people. And there are three relationships He wants you to pursue this peace and enjoy this peace. Peace with God, peace with your own soul, and peace with other people as much as it lies in you. So let's take a second and look at these three things that Piper talks about in his sermon. Three ways where we experience this peace now, this promise of peace. Peace with God. If you are in Christ, then you are at peace with God. It's a simple statement, but let that sink in. We have peace with God. We, sinful, broken people who can do nothing to earn this peace, if we are in Christ, then that penalty is paid. There's no condemnation in Christ, and so there's no condemnation in us. We are at peace with God. The second one is peace with ourselves. This knowledge of peace with God should also bring peace within ourselves. A lot of questions that you hear when you're a middle school teacher that I don't think change once we become, we become adults are, who am I? What's my purpose? Am I a good person? Why am I here? But all of these things are put to rest because of the peace that we have with God if we are in Christ. 
Those questions are answered. Who am I? You are created and loved by God. What's my purpose? Your purpose is to glorify God so others can also experience this peace. Am I a good person? No, you're not. But Christ is, and you're in Christ. And in Christ, we can continue to be made more like Christ. And why am I here? You are here to glorify God. You're, you're, the reason you are here is to bring glory to God. There's more to that, right? Bringing glory to God is satisfying to us. It's the most peaceful thing that can happen, but we are here to bring glory to God. So if you are at your work or your job, your, your job or your family or whatever it is you do, your role there is to glorify God. The third relationship where God wants us to enjoy peace. Um, oh, sorry. Finally, we experience peace with others. And in that same sermon by Piper, he talks about this peace. I'm just going to read one more quote from this sermon. It's kind of a longer quote, so bear with me here. The third relationship where God wants us to enjoy peace is in relationships with other people. This is the one that we have the least control over. So we need to say it carefully the way Paul does in Romans 12, 18. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. For many of you, when you get together with family for Christmas, there will be some awkward and painful relationships. Some of the pain is very old and some of it's new. In some relationships, you know what you have to do, no matter how hard it is. And in some of them, you are baffled and you don't know what the path of peace calls for. In both cases, the key is trusting in the promises of God with heartfelt awareness of how he forgave you in Christ. I think the text that puts this together most power powerfully for me, by me, John Piper, but I would also agree with him, uh, again and again, is Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Piper delivered this message 10 years ago on Christmas Eve, and I think it rings just as true today. We, we can experience the peace that the angels sing about, peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with others. I think we should dwell on the peace that we have with God so we can rest in the peace that we find within ourselves and we can be motivated to live peacefully with others because of what Christ did for us. But we should also be motivated to share this news with others. If you are experiencing this peace and you're not sharing it with others, then we're keeping something that is so great that should be shared with others. The shepherds are an amazing example of this. And this is where we get to God's glory, our call. If we take a look at the rest of that passage, we'll see this. We're going to read 15 through 20 now. Uh, give you a second to turn there if you're not there. Luke 2, 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known 
the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The shepherds do three things that as Christians we should emulate. The first thing they do is they go, but they go with haste. They don't wait around to make sure that it's safe, and they don't wait around to make sure their flock is safe. They go. When they hear about God's activity, they go. I think we far too often wait for this perfect situation to act when God commands or calls us. Or we only pursue God when it's convenient for us to pursue Him. There was nothing perfect about the shepherd's situation, and yet they went to be with Christ. The second thing we see is that they made what they had been told known. They're sharing this. If your faith is in Christ and you are not sharing it with others, then you have to wonder if you really grasp what Christ did, the magnitude of what Christ did. If we understand the magnitude of what Christ did, we will share it with other people. And finally, they glorify and praise God. God has done the most glorious thing possible, and we, including myself, far too often take that for granted. We don't think about that. We don't dwell on that. God has literally saved our lives from eternal punishment, from a punishment we chose. We far too often take that for granted. I pray that as a church, we grasp the reality of what Christ did the same way the shepherds did on this night. I want to close with this thought. Uh, we've talked a lot about the story, right? The, the introduction and the rise in action and the climax. And I hope that this analogy hasn't painted this as just a story. This is a true story. This is the story. It's not made up. It's real. It's our history. It's our present and it's our future. And if you accept it or not, it is everything. If anyone in here is a Lord of the Rings fan, um, no one cares if you read the book or you watch the movies. Nobody cares about the next door neighbor of Frodo. Maybe he lived the most comfortable and prosperous life ever. Maybe he grew the greatest garden or had the most friends in the Shire. And maybe he even went on his own adventures. But you never hear about him in the pages of Tolkien because this story was not written about him. The story wasn't written about Frodo's neighbor. The story was written about Frodo and the ring. The shepherds realize that it's not about them, but it's about Christ. And so they went to be with him. They went to participate in that story. I think we, too, have forgotten this far too often. Our accomplishments are nothing if they're for something other than bringing glory to God. We need to praise God the same way the angels praised him. We can build a business, or we can run a 100 in record time, or we can have 10,000 friends on Facebook. But if it's not a part of Christ, then we're not even in the story. And when the time ends, and I don't think there's going to be a movie that replays the history of the earth, but if there was, you wouldn't be there. And then if we go back to the Newsies, there's a scene where they're walking through New York City and, and the majority of the people that are in that scene are in the movie for a second. 
Don't be the extra that's in the movie for a second. Participate in God's activity. Participate in God's glory. And everything you do, do it for the glory of God. We need to be a part of the story by being satisfied with God's glory and sharing the good news of His glory with others the same way on that night that the shepherds did this. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful that throughout history you were patient with us and we're thankful that you ultimately looked at us, you had mercy on us, and you sent your Son. In the same way, the angels praised you for sending Christ. Help us to grasp the reality of what it means to be in Christ and help us to praise you too. Help us not only to keep that for ourselves, but to share it with everyone we come in contact with. I pray that as a church, we are out sharing this news with other people. Love you, Lord. Amen.